I'm Talmadge Boston, and welcome to this edition of Cross-Examining History, where we explore American history and thought leadership through conversations with best-selling authors. Today, I'm interviewing Wall Street Journal columnist Jason Riley, and we're talking about his new book, Maverick, a biography of Thomas Sowell, which came out on May 25th, 2021, and we did the interview as a webinar for the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth in front of a virtual audience on June 3, 2021. Enjoy. Thank you, Jason, for interrupting your busy schedule to give us an hour to talk about your fabulous new book, Maverick, which I highly recommend. Uh, In your opening introduction, Jason, you say that this is an intellectual biography of Thomas Sowell with the focus on his scholarly output as opposed to his life story. So why was that biographical angle more appealing to you than writing his life story? Uh, well, first, thank you, uh, uh, Talmadge, and thank you to the uh, World Affairs Council for uh, for your interest in the book and for inviting me uh, to be here this evening. Um, uh, I chose to focus on Tom's ideas for a couple reasons. One is that he has already written a memoir um, put out about 20 years ago called A Personal Odyssey. So if you want to deep dive into his uh, his personal life um, story, uh, I thought that would be the place, the place to go. Um, secondly, uh, Tom's ideas is, are, are, are what he most cared about highlighting. Um, uh, when I went to him about writing this biography and he agreed to sit for a bunch of long, long interviews, uh, that's what he wanted the focus to be on, not, not so much his life story as his ideas, uh, how he's distinguished himself as a scholar and as a public intellectual over the decades and, and sort of where he's left his mark and how he'll be remembered. Um, and, and, and frankly, that is also what I was, was most interested in as well. I, uh, one of the reasons I wanted to write this book is because I don't think uh, Thomas Sowell and his ideas are as well known as they should be. Um, I think it's um, quite remarkable and, 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 and quite sad that, that there are individuals like uh ta Coates and Ibram Kendi and Nicole Hannah-Jones who are far better known than Thomas Sowell even though he is someone who's, um, uh, whose output is, is far larger, not just in terms of volume, um, but in terms of its breadth and its depth and its rigor. Um, and, uh, and so I, I, I wanted uh, uh, to write something that might bring him to the attention of, of more people and young people in particular. Mm-hmm. Now, a major breakthrough in Thomas Sowell's life came when he was pursuing his Ph.D. in economics at the University of Chicago, and he studied under Milton Friedman and David Stigler. So how did those two renowned scholars impact Thomas Sowell's life? Uh, sure. So the, the two economists were Milton Friedman and George. George Stigler was oh, the I'm second uh, economist, and George Stigler was a uh, 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 Nobel Prize winning economist at the University of Chicago uh, in the 1960s when, when Tom uh, attended. In fact, Tom went there to study under Stigler. Um, Tom had done uh, his undergraduate work at Harvard, and then he went to Columbia to study under Stigler, who was teaching there. Uh, Stigler subsequently left Columbia and went to Chicago, and Tom followed him there and earned his PhD under Stigler and Friedman's guidance at the time. Um, Tom, I think, uh, took away uh, a couple things from his relationship with, uh, with Stigler and Friedman, both of whom were mentors to him over the years, throughout their lives. Um, and uh, the first thing uh, he got from them is, is, is how to be a good professor. Um, they were known for a very no-nonsense approach in the classroom. Um, they were serious academics. Uh, they were incredibly rigorous, empirical thinkers. Um, Tom brought some of that with him to Chicago. He'd always seems to have been born that way, frankly, from what I can tell. But um, uh, their teaching style 
and 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 uh, their demanding uh, teaching style and and um, their grading and so forth. I think Tom Tom picked up on that. What he picked up on from from Friedman in particular, however, I think was sort of what a model public intellectual looks like. Friedman uh, left teaching in the mid seventies, left the University of Chicago in the mid seventies after he'd won his Nobel Prize, um, but he went on to write books. Um, for non-economist uh, in plain English. He wrote a newspaper column. He uh, put together a television program uh, to help people understand uh, the issues he cared about. I, t I think Tom has modeled a lot of his own public intellectualism after, after Friedman. Um, most of Tom's books are not written for other specialists, for other economists, for other academics. They're written in plain English for general interest readers. And Tom takes a lot of pride in that. Um, uh, I think from Friedman, uh, he got the idea that the role of a scholar, the role of a public intellectual, is just not to spend all your time speaking to your peers in the academy, but to explain your discipline to non-experts. And, and that's something Tom has spent a lifetime doing. Yeah. Now, in the summer of 1960, between semesters at the University of Chicago, Thomas Sowell took a job at the United States Department of Labor in Washington, D.C. And your book says those three months became a turning point in his ideological orientation. Mm -hmm. So what happened to him while he was working at the Labor Department? Sure. So, so this gets into Tom's personal history and personal experience. And I should have been clear at the beginning, the book is not uh, entirely devoid of, of Tom's personal life and growing up and so forth and, and where he came from. I think it would have been impossible to, to avoid that topic. It, it has very much shaped how he, how he turned out. So, so just to, in terms of a little background about Seoul. So this is a, uh, a black orphan, uh, a, 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 a black child born in the, in the Jim Crow South in 1930, out, out, uh, outside of Charlotte, North Carolina, uh, during the Great Depression. He's orphaned as a, as a child. His, his, his father dies before he was born. Um, his mother dies in childbirth to a younger sibling. Um, a great aunt takes him in, and she and her family uh, move north with Tom to Harlem when he's around nine years old, and that's where he's raised in the 1940s. Um, but he has a, he's a bright kid, but he has a pretty tumultuous home life, ends up dropping out of school. He never graduated from high school, and then leaving home at the age of, of 17 and striking out on his own. And one of the several jobs he had at the time was as a messenger for Western Union. And uh, Western Union was located, or the office he worked out of, was located in Lower Manhattan, down in the Wall Street district. But Tom lived up in Harlem uh, in the projects. And so after work some days, he would hop on a double-decker bus that they had back then and just ride basically the entire length of Manhattan back home. And he'd ride up uh, through Wall Street. He'd go past the fancy shopping district, Saks Fifth Avenue and so forth. He'd pass by Carnegie Hall. He'd go up Riverside Drive, another very um, fancy neighborhood with, uh, with a lot of wealthy individuals uh, uh, call home. And then he'd, he'd cross this viaduct, and then there were the tenements. There was the ghetto, and that's where he got off. And he would say to himself, what just happened? Why does this look like this up here? versus where I started on that bus. And he says that um, Karl Marx and Marxism explained that to him. He had picked up a volume of, of Marx's writings as a teenager after leaving home and delved into them. And um, he was sort of a self-taught Marxist at the time, but he found it very, very convincing. And he thought it explained uh, his life. It explained what was going on. He felt uh, the capitalists were exploiting the workers and so forth, and that explained his situation. Um, and Tom remained a Marxist uh, through his 20s, even after being taught at the University of Chicago by Milton Friedman and George Stigler. And it wasn't until what you just said, that job in the government, that he decided to question his Marxism and his socialism. And that was in the process of studying minimum wage laws and their effects on employment, particularly the employment effects on uh, low-income minorities. Uh, he felt that they had a harmful employment effect, but that the government programs uh, that, that pushed them didn't much care about that. They had their own agenda. And this forced Tom to reevaluate his whole view of government benevolence and government programs and its impact particularly 
on low-income minorities. And he began to rethink his socialism altogether. And so he's now going into his 30s and he finally begins to move away from that Marxism. So a lot of people have the impression that, um, you know, that, that, that he was sort of bamboozled by Milton Friedman at the University of Chicago. But no, he was a Marxist all through that period. It was a, a job in government that began to, to move him away from that thinking. Now, he was in college and grad school during the late 1950s and the 1960s, which were obviously the most impactful years of the civil rights movement. So how did he respond to the movement and its leaders? Well, he was a supporter of the civil rights movement in the 1950s and in the early 1960s. Um, where he started to question the civil rights leadership was beginning uh, around the mid-1960s, during the push for the 1964 Civil Rights Act and the 1965 Voting Rights Act. And, excuse me, he supported both of those pieces of legislation wholeheartedly. He just thought that the problems of black people went beyond what white people were doing to them. And many in the black civil rights community thought that those bills were going to solve black problems. And, and, and in a certain way, um, beginning later in the 60s, the black leadership moved away from equal opportunity and that push and toward equal outcomes and preferential treatment for black people. Sol was opposed to that. He said that, that that's, that's, that's barking up the wrong tree. The other thing that the black leadership did at the time was to change its focus away from uh, the development of black human capital, uh, education, economics, and so forth. And the focus became more on building black political power, getting black officials elected. And the thinking was that if we just get more of our own in office, the rest will take care of itself in terms of uh, income disparities and academic disparities and so forth. Tom said, no, it won't. I, I, I do not believe that that will happen. You guys are moving in the wrong direction. You're taking your eye off the ball here. And he began to slowly split with the civil rights movement uh, back at that, at that time. Um, and, and again, as at the time he was a student and so forth, um, but, but he had his, his reservations about the direction in which the uh, civil rights movement was moving. And he, you know, he didn't write about this stuff at the time. It wasn't his discipline as an academic. He was a, a, an economic historian. He, he got his PhD in the history of economics and the history of ideas and intellectualism. And that is what he mostly focused on throughout the 1960s. It wasn't until the 1970s that he began to turn his attention to these racial controversies. And, um, and that's when he became a much more controversial, controversial figure. Right. Now, uh, while he was working on his doctoral studies, and then, of course, after he got his doctorate, uh, he became a professor at, at several universities, uh, Howard, Rutgers, Cornell, Brandeis, Amherst, UCLA. Yeah. And during those years, while he was a professor, how was he perceived by the students he taught and by his colleagues on those faculties? Yes. So, um as you know, this was a very uh, uh, tumultuous time in higher education. You had um, the 1960s, you had a, a black civil rights movement going on, you had a gay rights movement going on, you had an anti-war movement going on, a women's movement going on, and a lot of these movements used campuses as platforms to push their ideology, and a lot of schools were quite indulgent of this, uh, both the faculty and administrators. Um, and uh, Sol was quite despondent at that. He, he wanted to teach the way he had been taught. And higher education was changing in ways that he found it very difficult to accommodate, or he was simply unwilling to accommodate. No, you can't have uh, be absent from my class to go to a protest. No, we are not going to spend uh, the entire class, economics class, discussing the latest headlines. Um, that is not why you are here. That is not my job. And so there were these constant run-ins uh, with administrators, with faculty who were more indulgent of, mm -hmm. of what was going on at the period. And there were these constant, constant clashes. And Tom moves from school to school and has run-in after run-in uh, with folks that he believes are doing the students no favors by indulging them. Um, and and, 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 and it, this really comes to a head when he's at Cornell in the late 1960s, when you have 
the student, the armed students on, on campus and the administration really just completely capitulated to them. And, and for Tom, that was really the last straw. I think he was, he was and, and, and you have to remember, this is someone who wanted to be a teacher, wanted to be a classroom instructor, wanted to live out his days, preferably at a small school teaching, uh, not even doing research, but actually teaching. And um, by the late 1960s, and by the time you had the student protests at Cornell, I think Tom, Tom was starting to rethink that. And he would continue to teach throughout the 1970s, uh, as you mentioned, uh, places like Brandeis and, and eventually UCLA, where he earned tenure. And Tom was an extremely talented scholar. I mean, he had published in all the uh, highest regarded uh, journals, peer-reviewed journals, uh, often more than almost anyone else in the economics department. Uh, this was not a question of him not being able to, to handle the work of the economy. He was a star scholar at the time. Um, it was the faculty lounge that was giving him, him trouble and the administrators on campus that, that were uh, testing his, his patients. And so by the 1970s, he starts to, to kind of move away from teaching. He sticks it out for another decade, but he really kind of has one foot in the think tank world at that time. And he's doing research on other projects and less teaching and so forth. Uh, and, 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 and by the end of the 70s, he leaves teaching altogether. He leaves UCLA and he goes to the Hoover Institution which is a think tank at Stanford University, where he's offered a job with no teaching duties, no office hours, no administrative duties, and he can simply focus on his research. And then he begins to uh, churn out the books and he takes uh, becomes more of a public intellectual. He starts writing a newspaper column, giving a lot more lectures and public speeches, testifying before Congress and so forth. That all starts in, in the 1980s. Right. Now you point out that although Thomas Sowell's positions on race for the most part, have not been aligned with most black leaders over the last 60 years. His views advocating self-help rather than government assistance help matched up with the likes of Frederick Douglass, Booker T. Washington, and W.E.B. Du Bois. So what accounts for these two very different schools of thought on best approaches for African-American advancement? Well, Tom's thinking not only aligns with the, the, the individuals you mentioned, um, he would argue it aligns with most everyday black people. The, the, Tom is often uh, asked in interviews, um, how does it feel to, to, to go against the grain of so many other blacks? And Tom always corrects the interviewer, questions the premise of the query and says, no, 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 no. I'm not going against the grain of, of most blacks. I'm going against the grain of most black elites, most black intellectuals. And he says black intellectuals no more represent most black people than white intellectuals represent most white people. And those black intellectuals that oppose me do so out of self-interest, uh, namely on things like affirmative action, which help them, uh, but not so much the everyday blacks, particularly lower income blacks, on whose behalf affirmative action programs are pushed. And this is true in, uh, down to this day. I mean, you can go back to the 1970s, if you're old enough to remember the busing wars back then when uh, there was an argument uh, pushed by the NAACP that, 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 that children, black children should be put on buses and shipped out hours to some white suburb to integrate classrooms. Um, most blacks did not support busing, never supported busing, never wanted to put those kids on the buses. They wanted the good schools built right there in their neighborhood instead, but the black elites pushed this. Uh, this, this sort of thing continues down to this day with uh, the debate over school choice and charter schools. Charter schools pull through the roof among blacks. And the lower the income the black person asks, the more support they have for charter schools and vouchers and tax credits and all the rest. The black elites continue to oppose uh, uh, school choice. The NAACP opposes charter schools and vouchers and so forth. Uh, voter ID laws are something that a majority of black people support and a majority of black elites oppose. Uh, racial preferences in college education uh, and, 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 and college admissions, another issue. A uh, majority of blacks oppose it, a majority of black elites support it. So, so, so this is a, a, a situation that has only worsened in terms of the divide between 
the black elites and the black rank and file, yet you have um, the media in particular, I blame my own profession with this, who continue to put these black activists on speed dial and call them up um, to, to speak on behalf of all blacks. I mean, we've heard this in the most recent debate over defunding the police. A majority of blacks, an overwhelming majority of blacks have no interest in defunding the police, want more police in their neighborhoods, have said so for decades. I could cite polling going back to the 80s and 90s on the importance that these communities place on crime control. Uh, yet the black elites are out there pushing uh, a, a narrative that is at complete odds with the people they claim to be speaking on behalf of. So this is something Seoul has been put out, putting up with and pushing back against for a half century now. Well, along those lines, your column in yesterday's Wall Street Journal talked about the emphasis on the 100-year anniversary of what happened in Tulsa and how uh, that's not near as relevant as what's going on in Chicago and, and other large cities today. Uh, is it your perception that, uh, not the black elites, we know where they stand, but the, the the black people who are you know across the board and, and and from all walks of life, do you think that they are more important, uh, more uh, focused and and concerned about what's going on in Chicago today than what happened in Tulsa a hundred years ago? Oh, absolutely. Uh, I, I I don't think that there's any doubt about that. In 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 Chicago, in 2019, and this is according to data published by the Chicago Sun-Times, there were 492 homicides, 2019 in Chicago, 492. Three of them, three out of 492 involve police. And the black elites wanna have a, a discussion about policing? Policing? I mean, at best, policing is a second order issue. I mean, sure, get rid of bad cops. Yes, uh, uh, if you wanna talk about the police immunity or, 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 or the difficulty in firing police officers, we can have that conversation, that is fine. Um, but is that, is that the primary problem in these neighborhoods? Police violence or non-police violence? And, and Chicago is typical. We just marked the one year anniversary of George Floyd's death in Minneapolis. Uh, since his death, there have been some 100 homicides in Minneapolis. You know how many have involved police? One, one out of 100. And that one involved the police going after a gun runner who was shooting at them and they returned fire. So this idea that the people who live in these communities are obsessed with, with uh, who, who think that the idea that they think the police are a bigger problem than the criminals is completely divorced from the reality. So, uh, so yes, I would think that they are much more interested in what is going on today than what happened. But the question here is, is why the black elites are so focused on Tulsa uh, 100 years ago. Uh, why is there this, this constant effort to claim that uh, the legacy of slavery or the legacy of Jim Crow is, explains disparities that we see today. Well, it's not just the black elites, it's also President Biden who spoke on it. Oh, oh yes, yes. Well, you know, he, 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 they have his ear. They have his ear. Um, and, and, and so the question is why um, they want to keep the focus on these events of, of, of previous eras as an explanation of what is going on today. And, and the question is, they don't want to talk about uh, responsibility, uh, black responsibility, uh, black self-help, black self-determination. Those phrases are, are verboten in, 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 in today's discussions, particularly in the academy, but increasingly outside of the academy. We use words instead like uh, privilege disadvantage, advantage. But the people themselves that we're, we're, we're talking about, we talk about them as if they have no personal agency. And, and the Tulsa example is a good one. After that horrible massacre, after those horrible race riots by these racist mobs, that black community in Tulsa rebuilt. Within 20 years, schools were rebuilt. Churches were re rebuilt. 
and black businesses once again anchored that community. And it wasn't because they got small business loans uh, targeting uh, black small business owners from the federal government. They did not turn to the federal government for this. They would have been silly to because there was nothing to turn to. They did it on their own. And there's a whole history of what black Americans did in that period of time, in the first half of the 20th century, when, when frankly, the federal government did not give a damn what happened to them. They took it upon themselves. And the progress that was being made at the time is something that doesn't get a lot of attention today. In the night, between 1940 and 1960, for example, the black poverty rate in this country fell by 40 percentage points. That's before a 1964 civil rights bill. That's before affirmative action of the 1970s. You had uh, incomes rising at faster rates than whites. You had black gains in, in education both in absolute terms and relative to white gains. You had tremendous progress helping, uh, happening at this time period uh, at, at, a, at a time when, when, when uh, we were obviously a much more racist society. Jim Crow was the law of the land. And at a time when we were much closer to the institution of slavery. So, mm -hmm. you, 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 so you look at this and you say, people today trying to say that today's outcomes can be explained by the legacy of slavery or Jim Crow must ignore this entire period in black history and assume that this legacy skipped a generation or two and then reasserted it itself in the 1970s and 80s, uh, which is of course implausible. So I, I think a lot of these black outcomes today are not so much a legacy of slavery and Jim Crow as a legacy of the, of the 1960s, the welfare state expansions that we saw back then, the great society programs that we saw back then, all well-intentioned but putting in place perverse incentives. And, and that is what we are seeing the consequences of today, not a legacy of slavery or Jim Crow, but, but, but that is not a narrative that you see coming out of the black left, not coming out of the activists. And, and one reason why is that um, it is not a narrative that helps activists raise money or helps uh, democratic politicians get, get elected. Uh, a narrative that blames black problems on white people is a narrative that helps you raise money and get elected. And, and so that is why they don't talk about this period. Now, Sowell was one of the first African-American thought leaders who opposed affirmative action. Mm -hmm. So what's his most <clears throat> important thought as to why affirmative action actually led to slower black progress? Well, well, one of the reasons, one thing is just, so is an empiricist. So, so he looks at the facts and he follows the logic. So one thing you can do is look, is look at black gains in the pre-affirmative action era versus the post-affirmative action era and compare the two. And, and there's just no comparison into whether I, the, the progress that blacks uh, were making. But there's a, a more practical reason as to what is going on. And it's not limited to uh, race. Um, if we're talking about higher education, for example, whenever you take a student and put him in an academic environment where he does not match the, the, the credentials of the average student in that environment, that student is going to suffer. And that's going to be true whether you're talking about uh, a, a, a legacy child, someone whose parents went to the school and got in with some breaks. That's whether you're talking about a student athlete who got into the school uh, with, with uh, corners being cut for him in terms of academic achievement, all the studies show that those individuals suffer as well. And that is what has happened with blacks in affirmative action. They have been set up to fail in these schools because they have been put in situations where they are outmatched. I mean, there was a study done just to illustrate this of um, students at MIT, black students at MIT some years ago. And black students at MIT scored uh, uh, in, the, in, in the 90th percentile on uh, the math section of the SAT uh, of students all over the country. So you're talking about some very bright black students. But the average student at MIT scores in the 99th percentile on the math section of the SAT. So as a result, um, you know, kids, black kids that would have been, you know, hitting it out of the park on the dean's list at you know University of Richmond are struggling at MIT for what? What what good does it do to flunk out of Duke 
instead of graduating from, you know, uh, University of California, Santa Cruz. I mean, what are we trying to do here? Um, and Solis pointed this out again and again, uh, that, that, that the affirmative action has set up kids to fail by mismatching them with schools. And we had a natural experiment of this out in California. Uh, back in the mid-90s, uh, the University of California system ended racial preferences in college admissions. And what happened after those, those preferences were banned? Black college graduation rates went up. Hispanic college graduation rates went up. And not by a little bit, by more than 50%. And in the more difficult disciplines of math and science and engineering. So a, a policy, affirmative action that had been set up to increase the ranks of the black middle class had in practice resulted in fewer black doctors and lawyers uh, and engineers and architects than we would have had in the absence of the policy. So in the case of Sowell's criticisms of affirmative action, we have natural experiments, we have empirical evidence, we have hard data, and we have simple logic uh, involved. This is not someone, this is not conjecture on, on, on Sowell's part. Yeah. As you mentioned, uh, Thomas Sowell's amazingly prolific. Uh, you say he's written 36 books between 1971 and 2018. <clears throat> you point out that during the 1980s and 90s, the New York Times reviewed every one of Sowell's books during that time period, but then it stopped and it has not reviewed any of his last 18 books over the last 20 years. So what's your best guess as to why that happened? Well, <laughs> well, in today's in today's jargon, I guess you could say that Sol was canceled. <laughs> he he was canceled a long time ago, and um, uh, but it's a serious point that needs to be made. Uh, I, I spoke earlier about the black elites primarily being the ones who uh, proved to be his biggest enemies. Um, uh, and, and, and progressive elites in general. Um, you know, these are the folks that control the media by and large. They control academic, academia. They control the, the college campuses. Um, they control the committees who decide who wins academic awards in intellectual circles. And Sowell's refusal to play footsie with these individuals, uh, I think has cost him uh, in terms of his prestige, in terms of his recognition, and it's why you know more about uh, Ibram Kendi or Nicole Hannah-Jones or Cornell West than you do about Thomas Sowell, even though Sowell has written circles around them, around them, maybe around all of them put together, frankly, not to mention the, the, the depth and rigor of, of his thinking. Um, but this was by design. Uh, Sowell was identified um, as someone who was not to be uh, 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 taken seriously, not to be consulted on these issues, that he was not uh, presenting a legitimately black point of view, uh, that he was an Uncle Tom, that he was a sellout and so forth. And and, and it took its toll. It took its toll on, on, on him. And I think it's why he's not uh, better known today. And it's one of the reasons I wanted to, to write the book. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> now, Thomas Sowell has famously been bothered by the quote, rise in prominence and power of intellectuals well to the left of the general population. That's both as to the black intellectuals as well as the white intellectuals. But what's his explanation for why intellectuals are typically and increasingly liberal? <laughs> well, they, they, I guess his explanation would be that they, they always have been. And, and so let me, let me explain that a little bit. If, if you really wanna get inside of Thomas Sowell's mind, uh, inside of his head, and, and figure out where he's coming from on any number of issues. Uh, the book to read is called A Conflict of Visions. He published it back in 1987, and it's about intellectual history. And it's a book where he sort of makes this, this case, this impartial case that many of our political and social uh, disputes uh, are, are sort of the logical consequence of competing visions of how people view the world, how they think the world works. And so he calls these two visions, the constrained vision and the unconstrained vision. And uh, the constrained vision, uh, someone who has that view thinks that there are sort of limits 
to human betterment, that um, we may want to, to end war or prejudice or racism or crime, um, but it's not likely to happen. And so what we should be focused on is putting in place institutions and processes to help us deal with problems we're probably never going to completely solve. Uh, you may think, uh, you may want world peace, but it's probably not gonna happen, so you need a military. You may wanna end crime and, 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 and so forth, but that too is probably not gonna happen, so you need a court system to adjudicate disputes and so forth. And he contrasts that view, which he also calls the tragic view of human nature, with an unconstrained or utopian view that says there are no limits to human betterment. We can have it all. Um, and there are no trade-offs. We can not only manage these problems that we have, we can solve them. Um, and the only thing standing in the way is willpower and, 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 and reason. Um, and Tom says that these two competing views, he traces them all the way back at least to, to thinkers like William Godwin in, 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 uh, in the late 1700s, Adam Smith, Rousseau, um, Kant, all the way down through, 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 through John Rawls and, and his views of justice and so forth. And, 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 and so intellectuals have always exhibited that more unconstrained view, that more utopian view. What has happened more recently is that um, they've gotten more power. They've gotten more political power and more political sway. And, um, and, 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 and they've gotten more deference from everyday people, that these experts can lead us uh, down, down, down the pathway to the promised land. If we just listen to their expertise, um, uh, they know what they're talking about. And Tom says, no, this is a special interest group like every other special interest group that you should, that, that you should challenge that you should critique and not blindly blindly follow. They have their own agenda and you should be aware of that as you listen to what they have to say and respond. Um, so it's, it's nothing new, uh, but if you, um, if you really want, want to understand what, how Tom's approach to everything from race to intellectual history, to intellectuals, to uh, economics, to culture, um, a conflict division lays out the sort of intellectual framework that he is working within. And that would be uh, the, the book to read. It's actually part of a trilogy, uh, an informal trilogy. It was followed up by a book called The Vision of the Anointed. And a third book was called The Quest for Cosmic Justice. And in those second two books, Tom gets into more of an analysis of the visions themselves, the constrained vision and the unconstrained, the, the, the consequences. Uh, of these visions. But in the first book, A Conflict of Visions, he really just doesn't hide the fact that he has the more constrained vision and tragic view, but he's really just interested in, in laying out what those visions are rather than critiquing them uh, per se, which he does in the second two books. So all three are worth reading, but I would highly recommend uh, the first one. And, it, and Thomas considers it his favorite books of, of, the, of all the ones he's written. Well, as I was reading your write-up and, and description of a conflict of visions, I stopped what I was doing and ordered it immediately because I thought, <laughs> I thought in this era of polarization that we're operating in, this would be the best possible book to yeah. read to give us some insight on on, on how to deal with it. Yeah. Uh, now, in 1981, uh, Thomas Sowell was on William F. Buckley's show, Firing Line, when he made the following statement, quote, I haven't been able to find a single country in the world where the policies being advocated for blacks in the United States have lifted any people out of poverty, close quote. So what's Thomas Sowell's explanation for why no one on the left who for years have advocated for welfare programs, affirmative action, and racial quotas have been moved by international comparisons in assessing social inequality and what to do about it. Well, again, it's the difference between how an empiricist would approach this and how someone with that unconstrained vision would approach it. It's the difference between how someone who simply follows the facts and, 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 and logic to its conclusion and someone who says, well, this is what's supposed to happen. These are the intentions that we have. 
and therefore we will continue to 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 pursue this course because uh, we're well intentioned. Um, and they're, they're just two different ways of approaching uh, a problem. But Tom has long taken this international perspective. He doesn't want to just look at what's happened to certain groups within the U.S. He's also interested in what's happened um, outside of the U.S. Uh, among racial and ethnic groups in particular uh, who have tried to rise from poverty to prosperity. Uh, one of the reasons I mentioned earlier that Tom was skeptical of um, the civil rights leadership's decision to pursue political clout uh, to make that a priority. And this was not an argument that blacks shouldn't get into politics or participate in the politics or vote, or it had nothing to do with that. It was just about prioritizing this, placing the emphasis on this versus emphasizing the development of that human capital. But one of the reasons Tom was skeptical of that is because of he had looked at what had happened around the world among other groups that had pursued politics before pursuing economic advancement. And what he found mostly was almost no one pursued politics first. Um, almost all the successful groups uh, pursued economic advancement first, and that seemed to be a much faster route. In fact, one, one group that did it the other way, very similar to the way that blacks have proceeded, were the Irish in America, who had very early political success in this country when they came. Uh, you know, being in charge of these political machines in, in places like uh, Philadelphia and Boston and New York and so forth. And Tom said, but if you look at how uh, the Irish as a group were doing economically at the time, there was barely any Irish middle class to speak of. All this political clout that they had had not redounded to the Irish masses. And it wasn't actually until the decline of those machines that we saw the rise of the Irish middle class to the point today where, of course, Irish are, 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 are well above the national average on everything from income to educational attainment to representation in the skilled professions and so forth. So political power is one way to go, but Tom has argued that it's been the less efficient way. And that's true not only with Irish, it's true of, of if you look at the, the root of um, I mean, it's true to the extent that it didn't work for the Irish, but it's true that uh, other groups have taken that economic route, and that's true of groups like Germans, it's true of Jews, it's true of Asians. I mean, the Asian example is a, is a pretty relevant one to today. If you look at who, which group in America is, is, um, is, is just hitting it out of the park in terms of both educational attainment and economic advancement in this country, uh, it's Asians. How much political clout? Do Asian Americans have in this country? Um, so, so uh, uh, this is an, another example of the of the of the international comparisons that Tom has done, and and what his focus has been is that the groups that have developed that 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 human capital um, have uh, have not only risen faster, but it hasn't mattered what the larger society, what the majority population thought of them. Um, uh, so, for, for example, if you look at uh, uh, the Jews in Eastern Europe or, or uh, the ethnic Chinese in Southeast Asia, you know, these have been hated groups by the larger society. Yet, despite the prejudice they faced, despite the fact they were locked out of certain professions, had possessions confiscated, in the case of, of the, say, the Japanese here in America, mob violence, internment camps, you, you can't own land in, in certain states and so forth. Despite all of that, these are examples of groups who today um, outperform the majority population, both economically and academically. And so, uh, Sol has argued that is because uh, human capital is so much more important than political clout when it comes to a group's rise in society. And so the, he's always argued that the focus needs to be on that human capital. And he has studied this phenomenon uh, around the globe. Um, and, 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 and so it's, it's one of his legacies. He, he wrote a trilogy of books about this called Race and Culture, uh, Migrations and Culture, and conquests in culture. And it's something he's very, very proud of that came out in the 1990s. Mm -hmm. Jason, some people want to classify Thomas Sowell as an ideologue, while others see him as a wide-ranging scholar, a political polemicist versus a thinker. So is part of the hope that you have for your book 
that an awareness of the points you make in it will narrow that gap in the divided judgments on soul's impact and legacy. Well, I, I think if you if you read Tom, he's an he's an ideologue's worst nightmare, um, because he brings empiricism and facts and data to the debate. If your ideology lines up with those facts, fine. But if they don't, be careful. He's brutal. He's brutal. I mean, he he, he is. There are a lot of of camps, even on the right, that like to claim Tom as one of them. And Tom has always rejected these labels because he is such an independent thinker. Um, the, uh, the the libertarians like to claim him. The social conservatives like to claim him. But he doesn't really fit squarely into into any camp. Um, I'll give you an example of Tom's independence. He was. Um, quite critical of uh, Charles Murray's bell curve book and the sections on race and intelligence. And this is because Tom had done his own research in this area back in the, in the 1960s and 70s when um, a scholar named Arthur Jensen was pushing them long before anyone had heard of Charles Murray. Uh, Tom had taken on Jensen's arguments and found them wanting. And so when the bell curve came along, he simply applied a lot of the research he had done to take on Jensen to Murray's work. Um, and, uh, you know, Charles Murray is an A-list conservative thinker, but Tom did not hesitate to take him to school on this, on this topic when he thought Murray was wrong and uh, wrote a, a devastating review of that book for a conservative publication. Mm -hmm. Now, you point out that Thomas Sowell is great at identifying problems, but not so great at offering solutions to them. And he's content to leave problem solving to others. Does that impact his legacy? I, I don't think so. I, I don't know if I can say he's not so great at offering solutions. He's not interested in, uh, uh, in focusing on that. Um, he, he's, he, as he puts it, um, there'll never be a shortage of people who want to come up with solutions. Uh, he says, I see it uh, as my job and my strong suit to simply point out what's been tried before uh, and whether it's worked or not worked. And he thinks that um, the people who do think they have the solutions should know what they're talking about and know about what's been tried before and what hasn't. And he is content uh, to do that. Um, um, I don't think it's a dodge. Um, I think someone should focus on doing that. And, and Tom um, doesn't claim to, to, to have the solutions. In fact, one of Tom's most memorable sayings is that there are no solutions. There are only trade-offs. Um, you can go all the way back to his, 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 uh, his, his, his uh, minimum wage discovery and its impact. Yes, if the government mandates that somebody has to be paid a certain wage, and that wage is higher than what they are currently being paid, if that person keeps their job at that higher wage, that person is better off. That's, I guess, a solution for that person. But at what cost? How many other people don't get hired in the first place because they are now too expensive to hire? How many people who have jobs get laid off because they, their employer does not want to pay them the new higher wage? So that, that is part of Tom's legacy. To, pointing out these trade-offs, that there are no real solutions. There are only trade-offs. Yeah. Now, you made this wonderful documentary, and obviously when you're writing the book, you say you spent dozens of hours interviewing Thomas Sowell. Was there anything you learned about him from your in-person meetings that hadn't been revealed to you in his writings? Not not a lot. I'd, I'd been a student uh, of Tom's work for some time. Um, I, I, I first discovered him when I was in college in the early 1990s, and I worked in the school paper and um, was sitting around chatting about affirmative action with some of my colleagues on the paper. And someone said, Jason, you sound like Tom Soule. And I said, Tom who? And the, the person wrote down the name of a book on a sheet of paper, and uh, I went to the library a school library that evening and checked out the book and read it in one sitting and went back the next day and checked out the library's entire Tom Sowell collection. And I'd been hooked, hooked ever since. So I was quite familiar with his um, oeuvre. Um, I hadn't read everything, but I'd read uh, most things that he had written. And um, uh, 
but some things were became uh, were striking. One was how late a start he got. Uh, I don't know if I mentioned how late they, they didn't graduate from college until he was 28 years old. Um, didn't get an undergraduate degree, that is, until he was 28 years old. Didn't write his first book until he was 40. So Tom got quite a late start as an academic, and I kind of marvel at how much more prolific he would have been uh, had he uh, gotten the traditional start of a typical of a typical scholar. Um, the other thing that that I, I, I that struck me in in researching Tom was how many uh, black conservatives, in particular, didn't merely start out sort of slightly left of center, but started out on the hard left. Um, you know, um, because and the reason it's striking is because there are plenty of conservatives today who started out on the left. I mean, Milton Friedman started out on the left. George Stickler started out on the left. Ronald Reagan started out on the left. Um, it's, it's, not, it's, not, it's not uncommon. Um, but Clarence Thomas was a Black Panther. <laughs> I mean, Walter Williams, another libertarian economist who passed away recently, um, was far more sympathetic to the views of Malcolm X than the views of Martin Luther King. Uh, Shelby Steele, another race scholar and colleague of Tom's at the Hoover Institution, was a big radical Black leftist in the 1960s. And Tom himself was a Marxist, um, not just a liberal, a Marxist. <laughs> so I, I, it was striking um, um, uh, just how far left a lot of these guys started. But it also tells me that uh, you know when they weigh in on, on these current activists who are out there on the left and the, the neo-Marxist, they they know what they're talking about. <laughs> they, they they used to travel in that crowd, and uh, particularly Sol, who who had um uh, had been studying Marx for 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 a very long time. After reading Jason Riley's fine new biography of Thomas Sol, it made me want to expand my appreciation for Doctor Sol, who by all accounts is the most important African American conservative thought leader of the last half century. I hope you enjoyed this podcast. Make sure and catch all my podcasts at Spotify, iTunes, and SoundCloud. Until next time, remember, as my late great friend Bobby Reagan used to say, you can't hit the ball with a bat on your shoulder. This is Talmadge Boston of the law firm Shackelford, Bowen, McKinley, and Norton. Thanks for listening.